Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Seven ninety six BC was an eventful year for Syria, for Canaan, and for the Assyrian king Adad Nirari III. To start with, it may have seen his first Western campaign in nearly a decade, since back when the king and his mother had crossed the Euphrates to fight the Syrian alliance. A few Western campaigns are recorded in between, but they may have been led by his new Turtanu Shamshi Ilu. 796 may have also marked the first time the king had led a campaign since the passing away of his mother, Shamu Ramat. The queen disappears from Assyrian records around 798, though she'd clearly made a lasting mark. There are five different sources for the year's events, four of which are Assyrian. The first three are inscribed stone obelisks the Kala Stele, the Sabah Stele, and the Tel Al-Rima Stele. The fourth is the very terse eponym chronicle, listing the most important event for each year. The fifth is the biblical account. And, as you may have guessed, the sources are hard to reconcile. Some compress the events of multiple years into a single year, others set the events a decade earlier, and some use unusual names for familiar peoples. Numerous scholars have racked their brains to try to tease out what actually happened. I'm going to lean on a recent paper by historian Oded Tammuz, which puts forth what I consider to be the least unlikely theory. To start things off, the eponym chronicle for 796 simply says Tumansuate. Tammuz quotes scholars who place Mansuate in Syria, on the west side of the Euphrates River, which is fine. The odd thing is that all the other sources describe a major campaign that year against Aram Damascus. Ever since the Battle of Karkar, over 50 years earlier, Damascus had remained the greatest impediment to Assyrian control over the west. Its latest king, Barhadad II, had already signaled his hostile intentions by besieging Assyria's vassal, King Zakur of Hamath. So the urge to attack him isn't surprising. What is surprising is this. 
If there was a campaign against Aram Damascus, why doesn't that appear in the eponym chronicle? While Mansuate, which has no importance at all, does. After wading his way through the various arguments, Tammuz proposes a novel theory that two parallel Assyrian campaigns were launched in 796. The first, led by Adad Nirari III, saw the attack on Mansuate. The second, led by an Assyrian governor named Nergal Eresh, was launched against Aram Damascus. There are a few good reasons to suspect Nergal Eresh's involvement. One is that he was governor of the important border territory of Rasapa, which included the key Assyrian river crossing at Karshalmaneser. Another is that Nergal Eresh is personally responsible for two of the steles mentioned earlier, the Tel al-Rima stele and the Sabah stele. The text of the Tel al-Rima stele begins with Adad Narari III in the first person, boasting that, In one year, I subdued the entire lands Amuru and Hatti, marched to the great sea where the sun sets, and went up to the Lebanon mountains and cut down timbers. Oddly, the text then switches to the third person, continuing that he received the tribute of Mari of Damascus. He received the tribute of Jehoash the Samaritan and the Tyrians and Sidonians. He received tribute from all the kings of the Nairi land. So, a few things. First off, forget about Nairi land. That was clearly a separate campaign, if it even actually happened. Second, Mari isn't a name, it's a title. It just means my lord. And we know that the current king of Aram Damascus was Hazael's son, Barhadad II. Third, while the reference to Jehoash is solid, the Assyrians typically referred to the Israelites as belonging to Bithumri or the House of Omri. This is the first time they're instead being associated with their capital city of Samaria. The contents suggest some copying and pasting, and also that the person commissioning the inscription may not have had access to well-trained scribes, who could, you know, distinguish a name from a title or know what to call the Israelites. Tammuz also notes that the other monument raised by Nergal Eresh, the Sabah Stele, is considered to be carved in an unskilled manner, and includes occasional faults in syntax. The Stele also pegs these events to year five of Adonirari's reign, which, even if we're talking about his solo reign, is simply not at all accurate. Tammuz credits this as further support for the idea that Nergal Eresh's scribes were not skilled royal scribes. So, here's how Tammuz lays things out. In 796 BC, the Assyrian governor Nergal Eresh was ordered to march on Aram Damascus. Its latest king, Barhadad II, refused to come out and fight. Instead, he holed up behind the walls of Damascus and decided to weather a siege. When the Israelites and Tyrians learned of the siege, they rushed to the scene with gifts and thanks, 
because both kingdoms were sick and tired of being dominated by Aram Damascus. And, I mean, it's not like the Assyrians could be any worse, right? In the end, Bar-Hadad paid off Nergal-Eresh to withdraw his army peacefully. The governor demanded an eye-watering sum, enough to permanently weaken Aram Damascus and break its hold over the south, which had probably been the whole point. Actually, the events of the campaign dovetail nicely with the biblical account in 2 Kings 13. They describe Israel's oppression by Hazael and Ben-Hadad, Jehoash asking the Lord for help, and the Lord giving Israel a savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Aramaeans. Which meant that Nergal Eresh could add savior of Israel to his already impressive resume. For anyone wondering who Jehoash was, it's time for a very quick catch-up. We last checked in around 830 BC, when Hazael extorted enormous tribute from both King Jehu of Israel and King Jehoash of Judah. By the time of his death in 815, Jehu effectively cemented the preeminence of his Nimshiite branch of the Omride dynasty and was able to pass down rule to his son, Jehoahaz, who ruled over Israel for 15 years before being succeeded by his son, Jehoash, the king who brought the tribute to Nergal Eresh. In Judah, this whole period had been overseen by a single king named Jehoash. Yes, the same name, I know who ruled over Judah for 40 years before being killed by his own servants, supposedly as revenge for ordering the stoning of the prophet Zechariah. Jehoash's son Amaziah became king of Judah in 796, the exact same year as our story. For these same few decades in northern Syria, we don't have a ton of good info. Apart from the details of the Assyrian campaigns of 805 and 796, we get no further mention of Atar Shumki or his Arpad led Syrian coalition. It may have fractured upon the king's death sometime in the early 8th century. But we do know about one interesting development, which is that Sometime during the next few years, the city of Malacha on the upper Euphrates came under control of, wait for it, Urartu. The Urartian king Menuhud spent a decade as co-regent with his father, Ishpuini, before embarking on his solo reign, which meant that by 790 BC, he'd been ruling or co-ruling Urartu for going on 30 years. Menuhud spent the bulk of this time expanding and securing his kingdom, mainly through numerous wars against neighboring regions. According to historian Ezra Kakmaz Levent, it's also Menuhud who established and standardized Urartian military architecture. One example, the Upper Anzaf Fortress built by Menua, is about ten times larger than the Lower Anzaf Fortress built by his father, Ishpuini. It also features curtain walls, towers, and bastions not present in previous construction. Levant notes that 
This change was most probably an outcome of Menua's campaigns into the upper Tigris region, where he saw the highly effective defenses of local Assyrian cities. The sighting of the upper Anzaf fortress, atop an impressive rocky outcrop at the foothills of a mountain, and its use of leveled stone foundations and mud-brick walls, became trademarks of Arartian settlements right up through the end of the kingdom. The fortress also featured a palace complex, and the highest point of the citadel was occupied by a temple dedicated to the supreme Urartian god, Haldi. Upper Anzaf's fortified lower town was designed as a farming settlement to carry out focused agricultural production in the surrounding fertile plain and as a storage and distribution center for agricultural surplus. Menua helped to facilitate this role by constructing a small local dam. Historian Antonio Sagona flags another highlight. Menua developed a canal and irrigation system that stretched across the kingdom. The most significant of these was a 45-mile canal from the Hosop Valley to his capital of Tushpa, modern Van, which was named the Menua Canal after the king. I'm delighted to say that I have seen this very canal up close back in 2015. It was actually in use until very recent times, and the modern canal that replaced it still follows its contours. I'll post a photo. In addition to increasing productivity and defending the frontier, Menua was also a vigorous campaigner. With his north and east frontiers secure, and the Assyrian heartland just to the south, his ambitions turned increasingly toward the west, toward the source of the Tigris, once claimed by Shalmaneser, then further west until he reached the banks of the Euphrates. And it was on crossing that river that Menua claimed his first Syrian prize, imposing tributary status upon the Neo-Hittite kingdom of Malacha. The neighboring kingdom, just to the south, was the Assyrian vassal of Kuma. So it was pretty clear that, on multiple fronts, the two empires were destined for conflict. As I hope I've established, Adad-Nirari's Assyria was hardly a spent force, nor even necessarily a kingdom in decline. But it wouldn't be Adad-Nirari's Assyria for that much longer. Over the next few years, both Assyria and Urartud get new kings. And while Adad-Nirari versus Menua may have made for an interesting match, it was their successors who defined the trajectory of the first half of the 8th century BC. When Menua died in 786, he was succeeded by his son, Argishti. Like his father, Argishti was an active campaigner who'd pushed to expand Urartu's frontiers each year of his 20-year reign. Where his father and grandfather had secured the territories between Lake Van and Lake Urmia, Argishti turned his sights toward the north, to the Ararat Valley, Lake Savan, and the southern approaches to the Caucasus. While his father, Menua, occasionally campaigned in these regions, Argishti intended to conquer and hold them for Urartu. 
But during the first few years of Argishti's reign, he found himself on the defensive. In 783, King Adad-Nirari III of Assyria died. Together with his father, Shamshi-Adad V, and, to be fair, his mother, Shamu-Ramat, Adad-Nirari reunified and strengthened an empire sundered by civil war and set it back on track. In his latter years, the eponym chronicle records campaigns to Hubishkia, along the northern frontier with Urartu, to Dare and Ituya in Babylon, and into the Zagros Mountains. Though whether these campaigns were led by the king or his Turtanu is unknown. Upon his death, Adad-Nirari was succeeded by his son, Shalmaneser IV. And unfortunately, we have virtually no detailed records for his entire decade-long reign. The eponym chronicle does tell us one thing. Every year for his first six years, the Assyrians campaigned in Urartu, which probably meant that King Argishti became intimately familiar with the Assyrian Turtanu, Shamshi-Ilu. So let's do the same ourselves. Shamshi-Ilu was elevated to the role of Turtanu around 800 B.C., making him commander-in-chief of Assyria's armies and chief advisor to the king. According to some sources, Shamshi-Ilu was ethnically Aramean and hailed from the land of Bit-Adini, annexed by Shalmaneser III. We don't know what kind of talent, experience, or royal connections eventually landed him the role though he'd likely fought with Adad-Nirari and Shamu-Ramat in their 805 campaign. We can safely assume that he was at least in his 30s when he was elevated to Turtanu. This puts him somewhere in his 40s or 50s at the beginning of Shalmaneser IV's reign. According to historian A. Kirk Grayson, it was during this period that Shamshi-Ilu started writing his own inscriptions. In one, he boasts, without even mentioning the king, of having led a successful expedition against Argishti of Urartu. In another fragmentary inscription, he tells of erecting a new city near Asur, which he named Sharu Adina, or the king gave it to me. His inscriptions include a grandiose list of titles, including field marshal, great herald, administrator of temples, chief of the extensive army, and governor of the lands Hatti, Guti, and Namri. In 773, the tenth year of Shalmaneser IV's reign, the eponym chronicle records a campaign to Damascus. This is the only campaign where we have some detail, but it also takes a bit of unpacking. So, remember that really cool Pizarchik stele from last episode? The one that Adad-Nirari and Shamu-Ramat had set up back in 805 at the border between Kuma and Gurgum? Well, according to historian Trevor Bryce, Bar-Hadad had recently come north, removed the stele, and carted it off to Damascus. And guys the Assyrians do not like those kind of hijinks. How do we know that Bar-Hadad did this? 
Well, the stele somehow made its way back to its original location up north. And when it was re-erected, a second inscription was added to the back. As described by historian Yutaka Ikeda, the inscription records Shalmaneser IV's re-establishment of the boundary between Gurgum and Kuma on his return from a military campaign against Aram Damascus. But while Shalmaneser gets the official dedication, he's not the main protagonist. The inscription goes on to relate how, when Shamshi-Ilu the Turtanu marched to Damascus, the tribute of Hadyan, the man of Damascus, silver, gold, copper, his royal bed, his royal couch, his daughter with her extensive dowry, the property of his palace without number, I received from him. The wording of the inscription gets a lot of play and is taken as suggesting that Shamshi-Ilu might be acting on his own initiative. But to me, it doesn't stray that far from Nergal Erish's earlier inscriptions. So I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Long story short, Shamshi-Ilu took a page from Nergal Erish's playbook, besieged Aram Damascus, and extorted a huge pile of tribute including, on this occasion, the Pizarchik stele. It's worth noting that no Assyrian king or general had yet managed to breach the walls of Damascus. That milestone is still some distance down the road. Either way, as the inscription records, Barhadad II had passed away and been succeeded by his son, Hadyan. Shortly after the Damascus campaign, Shalmaneser IV died and was succeeded not by his son, but by his brother, another son of Adad-Nirari named Ashur-Dan III. Ashur-Dan would have a very long reign of 18 years, but we have fewer details concerning his reign than we have for Shalmaneser IV. The eponym chronicle tells us a few things. First and foremost, over the course of the entire 18 years, there's no record of even a single campaign against Urartu, which to me is absolutely baffling, though it certainly explains why Argishti felt free to extend his territories further north, as I'll talk about shortly. The eponym chronicle also records that for four of the first five years of Ashurdan's reign, the Assyrians campaigned in Babylonia. The entry for year four states, in the land, which is Assyrianese for no campaign was fought, which, again, was highly unusual for the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Shortly after this, the eponym chronicle changes from Google Maps to pick your favorite disaster. Things kicked off in 765 with the chilling entry of plague. The records for the next ten years include three more entries of In the Land, along with four noting major rebellions, including one in the inner city of Asur. The most disturbing entry for the Assyrians themselves was likely the one for 763, which recorded the soul-crushing omen of a total solar eclipse. The phrase they used was Shamash Akalu, 
which literally translates to bent or twisted sun. Meanwhile, the sun could not have been shining more brightly up in the land of Urartu. As we noted, Argishtid spent his first few years in perpetual war with Assyria. By the time the campaigns ended in 777, both the Urartian king and Urartian army were experienced and battle-tested. And with the Assyrian threat temporarily receded, Argishti decided to use his army to extend his northern frontier. According to historian Christoph Jakubiak, Argishti's primary goal was securing the fertile lands of the Araxes River Valley. The valley's upper reaches, near Lake Savan, were home to numerous tribal proto-states, and excavations reflect the sweeping violence that accompanied the Urartian conquest. As Argishti himself describes the campaign, Haldi went out with his weapon. He defeated the country of Etiuni. He defeated the land of the city of Quehuni. He threw them to Argishti's feet. Argishti says, I conquered the country of the city of Quehuni, which lies by Lake Savan. I reached the city of Alistu. I deported men and women. The text is recorded in a rock mausoleum in his capital of Tushpa, where the king was eventually entombed. And I have actually seen this text up close and have been inside Argishti's actual tomb. It is without a doubt one of the coolest sites I have ever visited. The exterior is covered with line after line of amazing Urartian cuneiform. If you follow me on Patreon, it's actually the background for my landing page. I'll make sure to post a bunch of pics. According to historian Mirjo Salvini, during this same year, Argishti began construction of a new Urartian royal city on a tributary of the Araxes. Its name, Erebuni, is Urartian for conquest or victory, and the city actually still endures as the Armenian capital of Yerevan. Like other contemporary Urartian sites, it was designed as a combination fortress, city, and agricultural center, intended to control and exploit the newly conquered region. Considering Argishti's recorded deportations, the city may have been built using captive labor. Argishti also built a second fortress city in the region called Argishti Kanili which later became the classical Armenian capital of Armavir. The presence of three temples in the city suggests that it was also a local religious center. An inscription records that, through the god Haldi's power, Argishti, son of Menua, speaks, A city for my power I erected, and gave it the name of Argishti Kanili. The land around was never inhabited. Nothing was established here. Therefore, I have led four canals from the Manu River. I had vineyards and orchards established. I have done good things here. I am Argishti, son of Menua, powerful king, the great king, the king of the land Bai, the lord of the city of Tushpa. 
Based on the local destruction layers, the land was never inhabited part can be dismissed as royal propaganda. Also, his own inscription records that some indigenous peoples were resettled to other regions of the Urartian kingdom, being replaced by others who came to settle in the Araxes Valley. Around 764 BC, or in Assyrian terms, between the year of the plague and the year of the eclipse, King Argishti of Urartu died and was succeeded by his son, Sarduri II. Looking beyond his frontiers in all directions, he must have been pleased with his prospects. Should he expand up north to the Black Sea coast, southeastward into the Zagros Mountains, or leverage the Urartian hold on Balachia to begin a push into Syria? The correct answer, as we'll learn next episode, was why not do all three? Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.